Hello and welcome to Signs for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. Welcome to the second of our annual two-part holiday recommendations guide. Last episode, Bethany and I got excited about delightful things to buy your favorite nerd. And today we have part two, where we bring in our favorite science book-loving super readers and get their top picks from this year's book haul. Here are the books they loved and the books you might consider picking up for yourself or for that science reader you know in your life. As always, don't stress as you listen. We have a blog post live on our site right now where you can find the complete list of books and links to where you can buy them. Just check the show notes for this episode and you'll find a long list of our guests' book recs. If you're thinking of buying one of these books or any book you've heard about on a past episode, check out the book list for this episode or the bookshelf section on our website, where we keep all of them in one big collection for your perusal. And if you use our links to buy these books on Amazon, we do get a little kickback, usually around 50 cents, for sending you over. So you can also use your holiday shopping to support the show free of charge. Returning for another year is the delightful John Dupuy. John is a scholarly publishing librarian and engineering liaison at York University in Toronto, and still blogs sporadically at Confessions of a Science Librarian. John, welcome back again, sir. Fantastic to be back, as always. And also returning is the wonderful Joanne Manister, a faculty lecturer in biology at the University of Illinois School of Integrative Biology, and a science educator and communicator who is also known as Science Goddess on Twitter. Joanne, great to have you back again, too. Hey, great to be back. And well, I'm sure hoping Twitter hangs around a little while longer. (laughs) Well, I guess we'll see what 2023 brings. (laughs) So we always like to start with just a little bit of um, sharing of our of our goalposts. Uh, approximately how many science books have you each read in the past year? Well, I counted up. Uh, it looks like 70 I've read of science books. And then I must be at one over 100, uh, like 115 total books. So, but that's a mix of other uh, nonfiction and fiction. Yeah, so wow. I hit I hit thirty seven this year, which is exactly the same as last year. Thirty seven science books, and um, but interestingly enough, well, as we'll see, you know, quite different. I ended up reading quite differently from last year, and and of the and so that's thirty seven, and I'll probably end up hitting about seventy three or seventy four uh, of, of books of all description for the year. Interesting, interesting. So what kind of books have you found yourself uh, looking for this year compared to previous years? Any kind of themes jump out at you re- rehashing your your reading history this year? Uh, well, I was looking and I, I have a feeling I put almost the same thing last year, but I, I read a lot of books about genomics, uh, things like genomic politics and genetic lottery, you know, how is a uh, genomics and genetics involved in social equity and things like that. So bigger picture as far as understanding our DNA. And of course, I I read um, some pandemic books. Uh, Some were good or some were really good. Some were (laughs) so-so. Yeah, I guess for me, the theme for the year was probably incandescent rage. So, <laughs> I just, when I get that on a t-shirt, my theme yeah. this year was incandescent rage. <laughs> I was going to say, I can't wait to see that list. <laughs> um, but oddly enough, I don't think it, I, actually, I don't think it hit my book reading as much as, as I would have thought. 
And, you know, when I look back at what I wrote, you know, at, at what I noted for last year, right? And the thing that, that was, to me, that, that struck me last year was that they were, we were promised this science fictional universe of, you know, flying cars and, you know, space habitats. But somehow we got all the dystopias, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. so... I think that was also kind of in the background for me, you know, in particular, um, you know, the client, you know, you know, what's the, the, the science fictional universe that we've ended up with, right? It's probably The Stand by Stephen King. Right. right. Which is, I think, not the one we were kind of hoping for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, um, and so I think what ended up happening to me this year for my reading is even though, again, that kind of incandescent rage was in the background, I was still really looking for uh, human stories to help make sense of it. And so, like last year, I think, you know, the thing that I was really looking for was a strong narrative flow to what I wanted to read, as opposed to just explain something to me. Mm. Although, again... You know, that's I, I say that as a binary, but of course it it doesn't actually it's not as clear as that in what I ended up reading and enjoying. But again, I think, you know, quite, you know, like I said, what I was really looking for this year was that kind of strong narrative to pull me through. Uh to pull me through to to absorb me in the book, to maybe give a little bit of relief from the incandescent rage. A little bit of hope or a little bit of something more human or something the other side of human. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And how do you know that's going to be in the book you pick up? Well, you know, I guess... Yeah, you never really know, do you? That's right. Sometimes, sometimes you, the 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 most incandescent rage comes from the book that you weren't expecting to have the incandescent rage. But I do, you know, I do try and follow reviews and that sort of thing. Um, and so, yeah, that that can kind of help. That's good. That's sort of where I look at it and see what other people have to say. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and this year I there were uh, three. Three people, three authors whose books I'll read, no matter what. One was David Quammen, one was Siddhartha Mukherjee, and one was Ed Young. And since they had books out, I'm like, definitely, that's on the list. And we can talk about those as we talk about other things. But- yeah, and interestingly enough, I, I didn't read any of those. So, I, you know, that's one of the things I always find so interesting about, about these sessions is I find, I find our overlap is very low, which is, uh, which is actually, I think, really cool. I always hear about such interesting books from you two. I look forward to this episode every year. So how was 2022 overall for science books? If you just kind of like take a step back and look at the, I mean, John was uh, saying before we started recording that he thinks this is his ninth year doing uh, book reviews just before Christmas. Um, But if you kind of take a step back and look at it as like a vintage of wine, um, what what do you have to say about the 2022 vintage? Hmm. Yeah, that's that is a good question because I felt like uh, <clears throat> maybe in 2020 we were still getting books that um, you know were pre-pandemic. They had been written before the pandemic and then got published. In 2021, we started to see the slow 
evolution over to books that say, and as this book is being written during the pandemic, and I saw a lot of that this year too, with, you know, in some books, it seemed appropriate to say, and this was chapter was being written during the height of the pandemic or this chat, you know, I could hear sirens outside in New York City and things like that. And in some books, I don't know if it mattered that that was in there or not. And I, I don't know, it may still, t- still take me a couple of years to, to process this. Like, oh, you'll, you'll always know which book was during pandemic time because they make sure to tell you. Mm. So, yeah, I think the thing that I've noticed over the course of the last couple of years, and, and you know, maybe this is just an artifact of the way I'm reading and the way, the way I'm approaching science books has changed. But the, I think there seems to be fewer kind of buzz books that everybody is reading. And so, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I think I do, I, you know, I think I, that's something I appreciate is the fact, well, maybe except for, you know, an Ed Yong book, um, that there isn't that kind of one super hot book that everyone needs to read. I think that might be, I think that might be, you know, what I've noticed. And, and you know, some good COVID books came out this year and I, I did end up reading some of them. But um, but like Joanne said, you know, sometimes it was um, the, you know, COVID wasn't the subject of the book, but it was a bit of a subtext in the book. Mm. So let's jump right into the thing that everybody wants to know first, which is what is the best book you've read this year? Yeah, so mine was uh, actually a surprise. I think it, I don't know if it was released in 2021, but the one I read this year was called The Genome Defense, Inside the Epic Legal Battle to Determine Who Owns Your DNA by Jorge Contreras, who is a lawyer and not a scientist. But you guys may recall um, in the United States, there was a battle with um, Myriad Genetics. And this company wanted to patent the BRCA1 gene. And the BRCA1 gene is the gene that may be a mutation in that is more prevalent in some women in families that are prone to breast cancer. And so uh, Myriad Genetics had a test for the BRCA1 gene. And when they had this test, they said no one else could include a test for the BRCA1 genes. So 23andMe couldn't, a small lab uh, doing science research couldn't use it. So it was such a weird thing. And everything was like, what what do you mean you own a gene? You can patent a gene. It's not your gene, which is the ultimate uh, decision by the Supreme Court. But this book was so fascinating of how this even became something to end up in courts at different levels and ultimately the Supreme Court, which did rule, of course, that you can't patent a gene. And now other um, companies and research labs can test for the BRCA1 gene. But um, this book was written, it was like a thriller. I couldn't put it down. I know that's a question you asked later in one of our questions, but it's so amazing. Um, I highly recommend it to anyone who's interested in things, all things legal, or even just companies or, um, you know, rights and restrictions when it comes to understanding our health and our bodies. 
it's it was absolutely fascinating. So um, as usual, I have two categories here. I have the graphic category and the non-graphic category. So in the graphic category, um, I'm going to go with Ducks, Two Years in the Oil Sands by Kate Beaton, which is honestly one of the best books of any description that I've read in a very, very long time. Basically, um, Kate Beaton is a Canadian cartoonist um, from Nova Scotia, Cape Breton Island. And after her university years, she moved to Alberta and worked in the oil sands for a couple of years, uh, basically to pay off her student debts. And this is the story of her life in Alberta and how it changed her. And so how this is, so you're thinking, okay, how is this a science book? Well, I, you know, this is kind of the human story that's kind of underneath the climate crisis for me. And often we see, you know, we approach the climate crisis in a, in a very scientific way or a very political way. But I think this is a way to approach the climate crisis in a very humane way. What does our obsession with fossil fuels actually do to people? And I think that's ultimately what this book is all about. The And one of the things that, that Beaton talks a lot about is how working in the oil sands changes people. The loneliness, the isolation, the the work hours, just the the not just the the kind of pressure that people are under. Um, and there's a lot of violence and depression. And she tells a lot of the stories in her own life about how the violence and depression and those kinds of circumstances affect her very, very personally. And so I think that was kind of an interesting way to approach the, again, kind of the climate crisis. As you know, a couple of years ago, I talked a little bit about The Patch uh, by Chris Turner, which I thought was a cynical way of humanizing the um, workers in the oil patch. And I think this is a not cynical way. Ducks is, an, is not a cynical way of humanizing the workers in, in, uh, in, the oil, in the Alberta oil sands. And so for me, like, again, I thought, you know, Ducks was just a, a really, really brilliant book and beautifully illustrated. In the non-graphic category, um, I'm going to kind of go to the opposite end of this spectrum. And I'm gonna it's, I'm gonna choose what if two additional serious scientific answers to absurd hypothetical questions by Randall Monroe, the guy that does the XKCD uh, comic strips. Now I read what if the first one a bunch of years ago, uh, but I didn't read it in the year that it came out, so it didn't end up hitting my list. But this one, as soon as it came out, I knew I had to read it right away, and this is basically a book full of absurd scientific problems that Monroe works out logically and mathematically very carefully. And it's also kind of, it's also really nicely illustrated. Um, so it's only, it's in the non-graphic, mostly non-graphic category. Just to give a couple, I've got the book here with me right now. And just to give a couple of examples of the kinds of serious scientific answers, or at least the absurd hypothetical questions. So what would happen if the solar system was filled with soup out to Jupiter? 
And so he just, and so he'll just spend like five pages working that out and figuring out how, you know, what would be the implications of that? And so if a T-Rex were, if a T-Rex were released in New York city, how many humans per day would it need to consume to get its needed calorie intake? (laughs) And so this, the book, and so there's a bunch of these, I don't know, 20, 30 of them. And they're just hilariously wonderful. It is, this is such a good book. And there's even like weird and worry. I mean, as if those ones aren't weird and worrying enough, there's even like a weird and worrying section where of ones that he got, but didn't answer because they, they terrified him. So like, can bees or other animals go to hell? Can they murder other bees without consequences? You know, how many mirrors reflecting sunlight would it take to kill or at least injure somebody? Uh, what would it take to defeat Air Force One with a drone? <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, so that, that was that, that was the book uh, by, you know, that was the uh, non the mostly non graphic book that I enjoyed the most this year. And, it, and uh, I would just put, you know, this is a. This is a book that just everybody needs to pick up and and read through. You don't have to read it all in one sitting or two sittings. It's the kind of thing that you can you can dip into and uh, and read a couple at a time. And then certainly that's what I did. You know, it's almost it's the kind of book where you you dread getting to the end, right? So you you want to read those last few uh, examples slowly, just you know one per day or the one one every other day, just to make it last longer savor them a bit. Oh, 100%. Yeah, I read Ducks and loved it. I really did. And uh, the, what's What If 2 is on my list. <laughs> what about a book that pleasantly surprised you? Transformer, The Deep Chemistry of Life and Death by Nick Lane. And um, so first of all, uh, he's a biochemist, he's a scientist. And his his um, hypothesis is basically it's not DNA or RNA that started life. It was the Krebs cycle, which is a biochemical cycle in our body responsible for helping us make ATP, which we need for energy. And um, so it's basically genuinely tickled that a biochemistry book could be so engaging. I, I was like, okay, you know, I've had biochemistry. I'm a cell biologist. This should be fine. Um, but I also like, I'm, I'm a sucker for subtle British humor. <laughs> and I just was like, you know, he'd say something funny and I'd be like, oh my gosh, this makes it so enjoyable. So I, you know, I don't know if this would be uh, everybody's cup of tea, so to speak, but um, I really liked it. And I was really uh, genuinely surprised by his his hypothesis about the Krebs cycle being really the first thing needed for life versus DNA or RNA, which is, you know, what we genuinely generally accept um, in the field. So I really liked it. And actually I think he wrote lots of articles or was interviewed all over the place. So he's probably got a good press agent uh, also. So if you, you didn't want to commit to the book, you could probably find an article about him and his book. Yeah, this is this is a a category that I always kind of struggle with because um, it kind of implies low expectations, and and I I try and I try and approach it in a way that doesn't imply low expectations. 
So I settled on the last days of the dinosaurs, an asteroid extinction and the beginning uh, of our world by Riley Black. And I guess the reason why this book pleasantly surprised me was I was actually quite look. I was really looking forward to it. I, I, I anticipated enjoying it. But the way she approached telling the story of the end of the dinosaurs, the asteroid impact, and the way the implications of the impact progressed through time, I thought was really captivating and, and, and you know, really impactful, if you'll pardon the expression, in, in kind of how much I got out of the, the story. So basically what she did was she said, okay, here's the impact. What, you know, what was, uh, you know, what was the state a year later, 10 years later, 500 years later, I forget the exact off the top of my head, the exact intervals um, that she used. But so it was like, okay, a thousand years later, how had, what was the, you know, what was the situation on the, on earth after that dinosaur destroying impact? So I found, I found that, that way of approaching it uh, both extremely interesting, very highly unique. You know, I'd read a lot about, you know, dinosaur extinction and all that, but this, the, the way that, it, you know, that it was approached here in the book, I think was so unique that I, I think I got an um, awful lot out of it. I, thought, I found it very, a, a very unique and innovative way of, of tackling this particular topic. I find it really interesting that um, your mind goes to sort of low expectations. I always think about uh, that particular category as a book I had some expectations about what I was going to get out of it that that weren't met because it gave me something that I wasn't expecting. So I usually think about that one as, um, as, uh, as a pleasantly surprised by a book that isn't what I expected it to be. Which, like I said, is kind of what I struggle with. Mm. Right. I try not to see it as low expectations and, and I try and see it as, as an, as a, uh, like, like you described it as something that getting something that you didn't expect. And I was just going to add that I, I really like the way you expressed this about Last Days of the Dinosaurs, because it was a very unique way. It's not just this is what happened to the dinosaur and this is. It was really colorfully told. And and as you said, like, here's the first moments afterwards. Here's a couple weeks. Here's this. It, it was really very, very good. I thought it was a very different way to write a book about dinosaurs. Because I know there are people who just sort of go, oh, another book about dinosaurs. But um, Riley did a great job with it. I agree. Yeah. And, and she kind of, you know, anthropomorphizes the dinosaurs a little bit. She does. You know, <laughs> which I guess is not strictly speaking the best idea. But the way she does it worked perfectly. So, yeah, I was really pleased with the, with the book. What about a book that changed your mind about something? The book that uh, changed my mind about something, and I think that was its purpose, was the book called Origins, uh, uh, Origin, sorry, A Genetic History of the Americas by Jennifer Raff, who is an anthropologist. And so it's basically anyone for anyone interested in genetics um, and how it's helped us identify humans and their movements across the world. And so um, 
as we know, maybe people know, the first humans to enter Americas were generally considered to be the Clovis people, you know, crossing that Beringia corridor, um, maybe 13 to 14,000 years ago. But now we bring DNA analysis and other archaeological evidence, um, sort of thinks there may have been people who came up a water route 20,000 years ago. And uh, so it, it, it was interesting. And she talked a lot about how the genetics is done and how to work with indigenous people and how to work with these ar archaeological samples. So I guess for me, I mean, uh, it, it did change my mind because I was always stuck in that. Oh, yes, yeah, the Clovis people, the Clovis people. And now we've got this other possibility that was even before that. Yeah, I find this is another category that I struggle with. And so the way I ended up approaching it this year was, was there a book that tried to change my mind about something, right? And how successful was it at changing my mind about something? And for that, I'm going to go to be, go with How to Be a Climate Optimist, Blueprints for a Better World by Chris Turner, who's already come up. I did mention his book, The Patch, um, from a few years ago when I was talking about ducks. And the thesis of this book is ultimately, don't worry, everything's going to be okay. The free market's got it solved. And so what he tries to convince us of is effect effectively that at the end of the day, it is in the business world's best interest for the world not to go up in flames. And so as the world goes more and more up in flames, it'll just the business world will just adjust and we will, I guess, magically get to um, carbon neutral. And as you can imagine, so yeah, like I said, this didn't really convince me that much that we should just trust the business people and that things are heading. What Turner wants us to think is that things are heading in the right direction. And the the fact that there's this mar this free market is going to ultimately save us all. Like I said, I don't think I ultimately wasn't quite as persuaded by his thesis um, as he maybe was kind of hoping that I would be. Not that I don't think it's an interesting book. Not that I don't think if there's a, not that I don't, not that I necessarily think he's completely wrong. Certainly we need to have solutions around climate can't ignore the economy. Certainly solutions around climate can't ignore, you know, kind of the global business environment. But I think he, you know, I think in some ways the book, I think, was a bit naive. Not, you know, willfully evil or anything, but I think maybe just a bit naive. And what about a book you couldn't put down? Joanne, I think I I, we had a hint earlier on what your pick might be here. Well, certainly the genome defense was hard to put down. I do have two others. Uh, one is the uh, the Song of the Cell by Siddhartha Mukherjee, who won the Pulitzer Prize back in, I don't know if it was 2010 or 2014, but for his book, The Emperor of All Maladies, about cancer. He wrote a book about the gene in the meantime. And so for me, as a cell biologist, I'm listening to this book. I actually, I actually listened to it and uh, I'm listening to the book and I'm thinking, I know all this stuff. I can't, I write like that. I don't want to write like that. I mean, I don't want to be a writer. So <laughs> that's one problem, but I'm like, 
it's amazing, you know, that he could take this information and share it, you know. So for me, what would take a year of teaching, you know, in more depth, he compresses into a book. So his writing is so great. And I just, I really like, um, you know, going through his works. Um, another one was An Immense World by Ed Yong about uh, the animal senses, right? Um, and that book was a bit delayed because he was supposed, to, he was going to be working on that. And then the pandemic struck. So he sort of got back to writing for the Atlantic. He was going to be taking a break from that. And so, but it's a good thing because his writing for the Atlantic won him a Pulitzer Prize. Um, and so that one is a great book because um, most people love animals and would be really interested to know how they sense the world and engage with it because it's just beyond what we can imagine. And we're just beginning to scratch the surface of what we understand about animal, how animals engage with the world. It was so good. Yeah. One thing I've always hoped, is that perhaps vainly, is that they would collect together all of, all of, all of Ed Young's pandemic writings from the Atlantic and maybe put it together as some sort of ebook. Wouldn't that or, be great? Because that would be fantastic. I think he's been one of the most reliable commentators on COVID from basically day one. And, you know, he's someone that hasn't kind of surrendered to pointless optimism. Uh, certainly, he's never been a minimizer, but I don't think he, but he's also hasn't been a overly pessimistic either. I think he's been very realistic and very honest in the, in the writing that he's done. And so that's, that's really, some, you know, Ed Young, if you're listening to this, <laughs> I think that would be a great idea. We've got fans. <laughs> yes, exactly. And um, so, yeah, so I think that would be a great idea. Now, my book that I couldn't put down is I'm going to go with Cobalt, The Making of a Mining Superpower by Charlie Angus, Ooh. who's actually a Canadian socialist politician. And so Cobalt is basically about this mining town in Northern Ontario uh, called well, Cobalt, where they mine, well, Cobalt. And it's basically kind of the, the Wild West, Black Jack Shellac, Yukon Explorer almost kind of story. It's very weird and colorful and crazy events. And so it's basically the story of this of this um, little mining town uh, through the through the decades, uh, mostly through the the twentieth the twentieth century, uh, the late nineteenth and early and twentieth century. And it's just super colorful, uh, very engaging. It's a book I read on vacation uh, last summer, um, sitting in a Airbnb in um, in Outremont, Montreal. And it's just very entertaining, very enjoyable, just a great story. There's a lot of colorful storytelling in here, but being a socialist politician means that there's also a very sober look at the, at, at the not so wonderful impacts that resource extraction has on the people that live in those places and the people that do the very dirty work of working in mines and, and, um, working around that kind of mine ecosystem, so so I think the book was was very good on both of those on both of those sides, right? Very thoughtful, but also um, also very uh, you know very entertaining. 
What about which book you want to read again and why do you think you might want to read it again? Would you what would you get out of a second reading that maybe you didn't get in the first? Ah, uh, this is pretty easy for me to guess because I I after I read it, I got, I'm going to read this again. And it's called Existential Physics, a Scientist's Guide to Life's Biggest Questions by Sabina Hassenfelder. Well, okay, if we're talking about existential questions of life. Yeah, that's always worth a second visit. Um, but basically, I would use this as a guide on how to deal with the public and their bigger questions. Um, so she explains what modern physics can tell us about the big questions, because uh, a lot of people go, ooh, quantum this and this, that, and, you know, like it's the answer to everything. And, uh, she, you know, she explains actually quite gently how some of the wacky ideas don't work. How they are ascientific is the term she uses, and um, and she she's you know instead of being condescending towards people's beliefs, she's, she's sort of like you know it's fine if you want to believe that, but it is not scientific, and that is not a question physics can answer for you. So, you know, so go ahead and believe what you want, but um, keep in mind that it may not be scientific and looking to science, you know, to make it match with what you believe may not be what you want. And but I just love the way she was accepting of these ideas and not dismissing them outright, but then just sort of saying now, but if we want to look at it scientifically, here's what we can find out. And I just thought it was a very good book. And if you have big questions about life, yeah, it might be a good book to read. Well, more on Sabina Hassenfelder uh, a little bit later on. I think possibly that might be one of our first uh, overlaps. But but my book, uh, my book in this category, in my in my notes here, um, under the rationale, I have LOL math, and the book is called Algebra: The Beautiful. An Ode to Math's Least Loved Subject by G. Arnell Williams. And so basically, this book is a semi-academic, semi-popular explication of what algebra is and why it's useful in the world and why we should think it's a good thing. I'm not necessarily sure that he makes, that Williams necessarily makes the case that algebra is beautiful. I'm not quite sure at the end. I think the title is from his, you know, publisher as opposed to maybe what he came up with. But I think I thought it was really a very interesting book because what it does is it takes algebra, the math, and it goes through and says, okay, this is one part of algebra. This is what it's good for. And let's talk about some applications of that. And he goes through a whole bunch of different areas like that. And I think, you know, very, you know, very competently, uh, very soberly and very well. And, and so certainly as someone that actually thinks math is beautiful, that thinks algebra is beautiful, I thought this was a really interesting book to kind of dive into. Why would I read it again? Because there's an actually quite a lot of math in there. And I think it's the kind of thing that is often, uh, you know, hard to absorb the first time through. And, and I, so I think this is the, this is the kind of a book that would uh, really 
benefit from a from a, a targeted second reading, right? Picking out some parts that maybe didn't sink in quite so much the first time through, and kind of um, looking at them, you know, a bit carefully. Because again, there's a lot of actual math in there, and so sometimes you need to kind of slow down a little bit to uh, to absorb that. But again, I I, I quite enjoyed this book. Um, is it a book that you know maybe probably is going to struggle a little bit to find um, an audience, uh, you know, possibly there's perhaps a little bit too much math in it to convince people that don't like math, that math is beautiful. It was kind of a, at a good, I, I found that it was a good level for me, but yeah, I enjoyed it and, and could probably get uh, quite a bit out of uh, tackling some parts of it again. And the funniest science book you read this year. Well, if I had gotten around to what if two, that may have taken the spot, but I didn't get to it. But I did really enjoy a book by Ryan North, who wrote a book, uh, How to Invent Everything. But his book this year was How to Take Over the World, Practical Schemes and Scientific Solutions for Aspiring Supervillains. And I wish I had some quotes from it. But it is pretty funny, although I, I did leave at the end of the book of basically thinking, well, he did tell us lots of ways to not take over the world, how, how this would not really work. You know, he tells us all these ideas and then says, oh, but that's not going to work. But this might. And so anyway, but it was very humorous to read. Um, he writes, uh, I guess he helps some of the, the comic book universe and the movies uh, come up with schemes for how villains, supervillains can, uh, you know, their schemes for taking over the world, will they work or not? Can we make this a true story element for the movies? So I think he, he did a great job. And it has some cartoons drawn inside. So absolutely uh, worthwhile for a good laugh. Just a quick note on Ryan North for anybody uh, who likes choose your own adventures or like text adventure games. Ryan North is the author of two Shakespeare sort of text adventure games in books uh, that are really excellent. Not necessarily sciencey, but if you're a nerd who also likes Shakespeare and who likes text adventures and who really likes to laugh, highly recommend To Be or Not To Be and Romeo and or Juliet, both of them by Ryan North. They're excellent. So, uh, Joanne, you stole my thunder on this one. <laughs> So this is that's actually so yeah how to take over so the world. Sorry, I didn't. It's okay. That's okay. I've got a backup. Good. I've got a backup. Um, I'm glad to hear we both liked it. Yeah, oh, it is funny. such a it is such a wonderful book. It is very very good, very very funny. Um, but did you feel the same? Like it seemed like in the end he said, but guess what? Probably not your best bet. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, none of his schemes none of his schemes panned out very well. Yeah. Right. I think. Uh, well, hopefully. But I also got the impression that, you know, if you if you sent him an email um, and perhaps um, a deposit to a, a very large deposit to a Swiss bank account, that you would get the real deal. Right. <laughs> and that, you, in fact, he would tell you how to take over the world. <laughs> so I did get that impression a little bit. And um, so, yes, it is. It's a wonderful book. Very funny. I loved his first book his first book um, how to invent anything how to invent right? everything yeah everything. that's the one that you know everyone's got to put that in their 
um, you know, all the preppers out there are going to have to get a copy of that book <laughs> to uh, put in their dungeons along with the, uh, the cans of uh, baked beans. Yeah. The bunkers and yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, more fun, more, 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 more fun than any of those things, but I'll go, I'll go with not really a science book, but since I, you know, I need a part, I need a plan B. I'm going to go with Revenge of the Librarians by Tom Gold, huh. <laughs> who's, who's a cartoonist who does work for um, The Guardian and a, um, a bunch of other um, outlets. And basically, this is short literary themed cartoons. And they're very humorous and gentle in nature, uh, nothing too cruel or mean. But very fun. Uh, this would be the perfect gift for the bookish person in your life. And so here's an example of one of them that I can actually, that makes sense if I read it out. And so coming soon, prequels to classic novels. The Young Man in the Sea, The First of the Mohicans, Howard's <laughs> Beginning, Portrait of the Artist as a Little Baby, Brideshead's, Brideshead Visited, and our toddler in Havana. <laughs> so, so it's quite a fit. It's quite a. It's you know. It's not a huge book. There's a couple hundred. There's maybe 150 or 200 cartoons or something like that. Again, a book to be savored and enjoyed. Um, it, reading this book made me think to myself: How has no one ever told me about this guy before? He actually had a science theme, one of these, a couple of years ago that somehow totally escaped me. And which, honestly, you know, having he's got a little um, excerpt on his webpage, which honestly seems like the absolute perfect book for me. Funny science cartoons. Oh, my God. This is the perfect book for me. <laughs> but anyway, so I'm going to go with Revenge of the Librarians uh, by Tom Gold. Nice. And what about the book that made you learn something or maybe the book that made you learn the most of all the books, the pop science books you read this year, given that quite often learning is a big part of reading science books? Uh, so I have two. One was Endless Forms, The Secret World of Wasps. And uh, there's a lot to learn about wasps. I sort of didn't want to read it because I don't care for them so much. Uh, do I like them more that I've read the book? I don't know. But it, there was a lot of interesting information. Her, the author is, oh, I'm going to butcher this, Sarian Sumner. So um, it was just page after page of new things. And I'm not an entomologist. So I guess maybe why would I know that? But I feel like we're always learning some new funky things about insects or organisms that we didn't know before. And this was uh, just a, a great book about wasps. So whether you like them or not, I think people would enjoy it. Uh, the other book I read may have come out in 2021, but I got it read this year. It's called The Joy of Sweat, The Strange Science of Perspiration by Sarah Everts or Everts. And uh, this book kept making book lists. And so I went, well, okay, I'll stick it on there. But it just had so many interesting things about sweat and including, you know, things like body odor and, um, you know, just how it changing, you know, 
when we change our microbiome, it doesn't happen that often because our microbiome is pretty resistant to change. But when it does change, it can cause all sorts of strange things, including new body odors. odors. And yeah, um, I, I was just really surprised by how much interesting information there is about sweat. So those were the two I thought I really learned a lot from. So yeah, I'm going to have to put that uh, book on wasps on my list. Toronto is a big wasp city. Um, historically, one way, and I think always in uh, the insect way. Okay. Um, so yeah, yeah. So definitely, definitely, I'm going to have to put that wasp book on my on my list. And for the one that I think really was very informative in that sense for me was Inventor of the Future: The Visionary Life of Buckminster Fuller by Alec Navala Lee. And so I didn't really know anything about Buckminster Fuller really before reading this book. I think I thought I knew something about him. I, I, again, the geodesic dome, you know, I'm from Montreal. So the famous, you know, one of his most famous domes is, is, was part of Expo 67. And so again, I think I thought I knew a lot about him, um, but apparently I really knew nothing in the sense that he was mostly kind of a huckster and semi-charlatan. You know, he was always running out of money and trying to find the next sponsor and running away from the creditors practically. And so, the, so in that sense, yeah, I think this is a book that I learned a lot about, a particular topic about, about uh, Fuller's life. And again, so I think it was something that was really surprising for me, the, what I didn't know. And I think that this idea that we almost see him, at, we see Buckminster Fuller as one of these towering geniuses of the, of the 20th century. But the theme of the book was, you know what? Yeah, maybe geodesic domes are good for a couple of small little applications, but mostly they've ended up kind of failing at everything that, that they were used for. And I go, oh, oh, yeah. That seems that is the case, isn't it? And so, and so again, I, so that that was so in that sense, yeah. This book was some was a was really was you know really eye opening for me. And I do want to point out that the author Alex Alec Navala Lee uh, published another book a few years ago that I really enjoyed. It was one of the best books that I've read in a long time. One of the best nonfiction books that I've read in a long time. Uh, it was called Astounding. John W. Campbell, Isaac Asimov, Robert A. Heinlein, L. Ron Hubbard, and the Golden Age of Science Fiction. So science adjacent. And um, again, very much the an exploration of those four men and how we saw them as giants of that kind of golden age of science fiction and how, in fact, right, let's just say feet of clay is not a you know, uh, you know, they they more they were more human than giants, right? And so, in that sense, the the two books are very similar, and and both uh, uh, both really excellent. Um, so yeah, so bo two books that I would that would that I would highly recommend. Wow. Well, I am going to thank you for that recommendation because it is actually right here in my Libby app, which uh, those of you who do e-reading or, or audiobook reading, you can check out books that way, um, at least in the US on this app. So it's it's queued up, ready to go. I was waiting till after the show was done <laughs> to get which, started. <laughs> which, which one? The Buckminster Fuller? Uh, Buckmin the inventor of the future. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's right there waiting. I've been waiting for like two months for it from the library. So here it is ready to go. There's a bit of, there's, you know, he, he goes a little bit into the gory details sometimes maybe a little bit more than you really needed to know, but overall the book is excellent. Good well, that's to know. A, it is long. <laughs> I see. Well, that's yeah. an excellent segue into the best science history book or perhaps science biography that you've read this year. Wow. This is sort of uh, tricky, but I'm going to say for best science history book, talk, let's talk about recent science history is David Quammen's book about the scientific look at the pandemic called Breathless, The Scientific Race to Defeat a Deadly Virus. Now, he was on the long list for the National Book Award this year. He's been on some other lists. Um, This book is, in my opinion, the definitive look at the science of the pandemic. And it goes back to before the pandemic. Of course, he wrote a book about um, zoonotic diseases, so with his book Spillover. So he is already well aware of what's involved in a pandemic and, you know, uh, how this, you know, a disease jumps from animals to humans, what could be the origins of this disease, making the, uh, the vaccine, et cetera. He includes everything. He even approaches the topic of the, you know, is it the natural origin or lab leak hypothesis? And, um, you know, it's amazing because, uh, See, I, Matt, Matt Ridley, who I have admired for certain books, but not his recent books, um, including his one with Alina Chen about the, you know, that this was a lab leak. Um, he, he actually says, well, I'm friends with Matt Ridley, and I hope we get to stay that way. So he, he and he gave such a good explanation of the origin, what, what could be the possible origins And he, of course, has talked to so many scientists that over the years, he's already had relationships with because he's already been talking about these diseases. And that is one reason that makes this book so superlative is he has his, you know, finger on the pulse of the people involved. And so it was really a great book. So if you want to say history, it will be history sometime, maybe not yet, but, um, I thought it was really a fantastic book and it deserves the accolades it gets. Um, the science biography that I really liked was Carbon Queen, The Remarkable Life of Nanoscience Pioneer Mildred Dresselhaus by Maya Weinstock. And I've just been a fan of Maya and her work with all the scientific Legos and things like that. So I was sort of happy to, to read a book about um, this, this woman, which actually I didn't know much about her. And uh, so it was a very enlightening book. I recommend it. Yeah. So the for me, oddly enough, last year, I hardly read. I really struggled to find something in this category last year. For whatever reason, I didn't end up reading much on uh, biography or history. This year, exactly the opposite. I did do quite a bit of, and you know, some of the biographies already come up. The ones that, uh, that really struck a chord for me this year on the history side was uh, Flying Blind, the 737 MAX tragedy and the fall of Boeing by Peter Robison. And so, you know, I don't have an awful lot to say about this book. It's in many ways a corporate history. I found that the parts of it that were basically the ins and outs uh, and comings and goings of the various CEOs, a little bit less um, 
edifying. But it also, but at the same time, the book also does a really great job of kind of narrowing in on the corporate and organizational desire for money and how that changed the engineering culture of Boeing over time. And it was that shift from an engineering culture to kind of a corporate business culture that 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 basically set the stage for the 737 Max tragedies uh, and all the people that died, uh, uh, you know, as a result. And so again, so I, the, a, a very a very good book, one that I that I thought was really interesting. On the biography side, the one I wanted to talk about, um, which was actually the last book I read uh, preparing for this, I just finished it on I just finished it uh, yesterday or the day before. Uh, Einstein by Jim Adoviani, Gerald Dye, and Allison Acton. A graphic novel biography of Einstein, uh, and one of the best graphic no- science-themed graphic novels that I've that I've really uh, ever read. The ones you know, this year's reading in science graphic novels was just uh, was just extraordinary. And of course, the life the life of Einstein has been told. Um, in many many books over the years, and this is a really this is a, a really excellent telling, um, a shorter, more concise telling. I think probably again a little bit more geared towards someone that's already somewhat familiar with the shape of Einstein's life. But the good news is it's also told in a very. Um, open, engaging way. The way Ottaviani um, tells the story is basically through the life of the pe- the, lo- the life of the people around Einstein. So you would see a, you know a series of panels and Einstein would be doing something and the people around him, his wife, his colleagues, his friends, would break the fifth wall and talk to the audience and would kind of tell tell the story of Einstein's life that way from the perspective of the people around him. And I, I found that really interesting. And it, it added kind of an emotional resonance to Einstein's story and kind of that a deep feeling where you could get a sense of who he really was. You know, the science is great, right? There's very, you know, very well told. But again, it, you know, um, the way the story is told gives that, that kind of holistic sense of who Einstein was as a person, which was often not that great. He he was, you know, really not a very good person, for example, to the women in his life. And and it, that's easy to tell because it gives this the way he the way Ottaviani tells the story, you know, gives the stage to those women. So Einstein will be sitting at a desk. And his wife will turn to the audience and say, "You know, what a schmuck, practically." And and so that I thought I thought that was a, a really interesting way, and, and interestingly paralleled, kind of the way I viewed uh, Rolling Stone Keith Richards' book, his his memoirs, where he seemed to be going through life um, with people dying left, right, and center just kind of zipping through life as if none of that was happening around him. And I, I got kind of the impression that Einstein was, the, the impression that the book gives of Einstein is that he was kind of the same, that he kind of had a trajectory to his life that, you know, everyone else was just had a bit part. And, and I don't think I've ever seen really the story, you know, the story of Einstein's life 
that way. And it really, it really resonated. Interesting. I'm always kind of fascinated by books and tellings of these very famous people's lives who kind of everyone knows, but we don't really know the person. I'm always interested to hear about the books that focus as much on the person as they do about the myth. Yeah. I, yeah, I saw that. I was intrigued by that book. So maybe I'll add it to my list now. And um, I did read The Flying Blind, 737. It's the kind of book you sit there and you clench your fist really tight <laughs> as you're reading it right. going, grrr. Incandescent rage. <laughs> rage. There's that theme exactly. again. <laughs> and I didn't yeah. add it to my list of science books, but since you did, now I can do that. <laughs> well, it's a, I mean, I, you know, my, bro- my, my, my definition of science definitely includes uh, you know, I, I tend to talk a little bit, maybe more about the, like the engineering side of things, sure. the tech side of things. <laughs> and definitely, I think it, you know, techno- technology failure for me is a huge topic that I'm really uh, quite interested in. So. Sure thing. Yeah. It was good. It was good to read. Good to read. So what about a book you would maybe give to someone in your life? Who's not usually a science reader. So uh, this is this is funny. I thought, oh, okay, this is not a book I would recommend for everybody who doesn't read science, but let's say you are a runner and or someone who likes marijuana. <laughs> I have a book I would recommend to you, even if you don't like science. And, be, and the reason why I say this is because I saw this book at the library, Runner's High, How a Movement of Cannabis-Fueled Athletes is Changing the Science of Sports by Josiah Hess, or Hesse, I'm not sure he says his name. And um, so I thought, oh, that's intriguing because I've got a lot of runners in my family, not me, not me. And, um, you know, all my kids live in states where uh, marijuana is legal. That number keeps growing. So I guess that's more of a chance of that happening. Um, So I thought, Oh, let me read this. This could be interesting. And it was interesting. So since I checked it out from the library, I ended up buying three copies <laughs> to send to my various family members. So I wanted to say, yes. So in real life, I actually recommended this book multiple times to multiple people. And it was it was very fascinating. It's not such a secret that athletes use um, marijuana. He doesn't really talk about other kinds of drugs. And he does even have a practical section at the back. Should you want to run while high? You know, how do you do that? Where do you start? You know, what happens? What's the best way to do this? Uh, I won't be taking that advice. But I tell you, it was an interesting read. I'm you know, going to do neither. But anyway, so I thought that's definitely a book for people who might be interested in either or or both, but not necessarily always interested in science. And another book that I thought was, again, it's a British author, and she just had this darling sense of humor. Um, And it's, uh, you know, for new moms, moms who are always looking what you know, what do I believe? What do I, what should I do? And her book is called Growing Up Human, The Evolution of Childhood by Brenna Hassett. And I thought she just did a great job presenting what we understand about evolution and how, you know, child rearing is done um, based on evolutionary principles and can give you good scientific based answers for maybe what you should be doing with your children and should you be listening to these online forums that say do this, that, and the other, or should you not? So those are the two books I would recommend. Yeah, I got a, I got a couple here. 
Um, and, uh, or, if, you know, the first one that came to my mind for this topic was the existential physics by Sabina Hassenfelder. And I think, you know, for every reason that Joanne mentioned earlier, but I think also because of just um, Hassenfelder's writing style, she she has a very personable writing style, uh, slyly humorous, very uh, very accessible, and so I think this is the kind of a book that um, the non science reader could you know could approach and get into quite easily. There's a couple of spots in the book where, you know, maybe she dives a little bit into the deep end on the physics side, but I think that, you know, her, again, her writing style is so approachable and so slyly humorous and so, so self-deprecating that I think it draws you in. So I think, you know, the, it, that makes it a very good book for someone that doesn't read a lot of, of that kind of highly technical topic. Another one is A Portrait of the Scientist as a Young Woman by Lindy Elkins Tanton. Um, again, you know, just a very well-written book. Um, the authors, um, are very similar in some ways to the to the Simard book that we, uh, Suzanne Simard book from last year. Um, just about, you know, just about this a woman's adventures in becoming a scientist and overcoming the the deeply inbred uh, misogynistic culture of science. And so I think that's, you know, again, a good book that, that uh, you know, that is, uh, helps people, non-science people understand the human part, good and bad of, of science. And the last one, again, another graphic novel, again, I had, it was such a good year for, for the science themed graphic novels. Uh, Two Heads, a graphic, a graphic exploration of how our brains work with other brains by Uta Frith, Chris Frith, Alex Frith, and Daniel Locke. Just, you know, I don't have a lot to say about this book. It's just um, a really good example of how to use illustrations to explain real scientific concepts. And, uh, you know, and this one uh, with neuroscience as, as an example. Now let's swing way over to the other side, to the avid science reader, perhaps people who host a science podcast or who are asked to come and recommend science books once a year around the holidays, what kind of book would you get them? Um, I put down here this book by Cal Flynn called Islands of Abandonment, Nature Rebounding in the Post-Human Landscape. And she just tours these places that have been destroyed by humans or neglected by humans. But what happens? How does nature take over? And what's the you know, the beauty of all of that. Um, and uh, so I really enjoyed that book. And it was certainly not something I had read before. So I'm a person who reads a lot of books. So I definitely enjoyed that one. It was it was very beautiful in its own way. Yeah, somehow this became the incandescent rage cate- category for me. <laughs> um, so because I, I think an avid science reader should be able to take the tough stuff. So uh, first up for me is the playbook, how to deny science, sell lies and make and make a killing in the corporate world by Jennifer Jaquette. And this is basically written as if it's a manual for 
big companies on how to deny science, sell lies, and make a killing in the corporate world. And I think largely we're supposed to imagine that this is for a fossil, you know, for a, you know, a fossil fuel company or a big car company or one of those kinds of companies. Again, just a manual for them on how to on how to disrupt the scientific narrative as it applies to their to their business. But I think it, it also had a lot of resonance for me in that this was kind of a a, um, a secret pandemic book because I think it used there was a lot in here on you know a lot of these techniques are all the same ones that have been used by our delinquent public health authorities to convince us that everything is fine when in fact things aren't all fine and so that was so there was an extra resonance to this book as well another one uh, choke point capitalism how big tech and big content captured creative lab- labor markets and how we'll win them back i think with the longest title by rebecca giblin and cory doctorow basically how big tech has dis- you know has created has put themselves as intermediaries in every cultural market and are and are have basically become rent seekers trying to suck out all the money between the, between consumers of culture and the makers of culture um, again something we can see in in books and music and a whole bunch of different areas so really 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 excellent as usually you would expect from any of Cory Doctorow's um, kind of polemics. And I think with Giblin here giving a lot of the actual knowledge, the legal knowledge. And so they made, a, I think, a, an exceptional pairing on writing this book. It had the, the righteous anger from Dr. O and the actual facts from Giblin. And the third one I'll mention here very quickly, uh, The Shame Machine, who profits in the new age of humiliation by uh, Kathy O'Neill. Now, this isn't a cancel culture is bad book. This is more of a how tech tries to shift, you know, how big tech tries to shift responsibility for social problems away from the institutions that are causing those problems to blaming individual people for those problems. And often she, you know, for example, one of the examples she uses often uh, is obesity. And, and so, again, a very, a, a very wise book, a very deep book, uh, one that I don't think necessarily everyone's going to agree with every point, but definitely worth reading. And, you know, someone who's used to being challenged by really good science books, I think will benefit from this book and will benefit from, from all of the books that I mentioned here. So we're uh, getting short on time. So we're going to skip a couple of categories, but I trust that when you send me your book lists, I'll be able to include them for the curious. Um, So if you want to find out if Joanne and John have any recommendations for science fiction books or for science books for children, you'll have to click on that link um, and, (laughs) and we'll, uh, we'll make sure they're provided in 
uh, the blog post companion to this episode. But I do want to find out um, what books you haven't read yet, but are on your wish list or approaching the top of your wish list right now. So, uh, well, this list is super long, but I'll just maybe pick, uh, I'll pick two. Um, number one is Butts, a Backstory by Heather Radke. And so it's an anthropological look at the, you know, what humans think of butts. So uh, she's, she, I think she helps write for Radiolab. So um, I look forward to that book. Another one is Pests, How Humans Create Animal Villains by Bethany Brookshire, which regular listeners will know who she is. And those are right there. Now, um, I think I did say queued up in my um, uh, book is to the inventor of the future that John talked about. And then I'm also reading At Home on an Unruly Planet about climate change and how that can affect us. So those are books that I'm currently reading. Um, but the the two butts and pests are two um, that are on my list, but I, the longer list will be when you click the link, you can see what else I'm planning to read. So the one that I'm reading right now, the one that I've just started and I'm literally only a couple of pages into is Fire and Flood, A People's History of Climate Change from 1979 to the Present by Eugene Linden. And so, you know, hopefully I'll be uh, talking about that uh, next year. So certainly Breathless, the David Quammen book is high on my list of books that somehow, it's one of those books that you're th- that I think, you know, you think to yourself, how come I didn't read that one already? And so definitely high on my list there. Um, and of course, um, from the Toronto perspective, um, Sideways, The City Google Couldn't Buy by Josh O'Kane is um, a detailed dissection of uh, the, the Google sidewalk plan to develop a part of Toronto, to uh, redevelop part of Toronto as kind of one of those mythical uh, smart cities and how that kind of um, unraveled. And so I'm looking forward to that as well. Interestingly enough, as it turned out, I didn't end up reading any of the books that I listed in this category last year. So let's see how it goes uh, this year. <laughs> oh, interesting. <laughs> I did read Fire and Flood. It's good. You'll like it. Yeah, it's good. He, he's he been reporting on that for his whole career. So I've, he has a great perspective. Yeah, I think what happens with this category is, right, all of a sudden Christmas is over, right? We read a bunch of, you know, kind of winter beach novels over Christmas. And then all of a sudden, January, February, and it's like, oh, my God, the new books are here. So when do you, you know, there's not a lot of opportunity to catch up. True. (laughs) True. Well, uh, we'll, we'll have to see what happens next year when we reconvene to see which books uh, in the books you haven't read yet, but are on your wish list actually end up making the cut. That's potentially a new category we'll add uh, to follow up with next year. (laughs) Oh, no. And, you know, um, so I think the first year that I joined this, John had recommended a book, The Death and Life of the Great Lakes by Dan Egan. And I love that book so much. I had not read it. John recommended it. I was like, okay, I love this book. And so I'm really excited because uh, next year we see a new book from Dan Egan called The Devil's Element, Phosphorus in a World Out of Balance. I am so looking forward to another book by him. Oh, I didn't know that was coming out. I am now also looking very forward to uh, that book. 100%. 
And, you know, one thing that we we didn't really, I read a bunch of COVID books this year, right? And we somehow I didn't end up mentioning any of them. You know, is is the, is is our COVID reading list another episode? <laughs> Maybe. I feel like that's uh, like the five year retrospective. That's really when we sit down and talk through and uh, and hash over the COVID books. You gotta you gotta let the dust settle on the COVID books. Well, yeah, because I read a couple of the books about the vaccine development. Uh, the mm. there there were ones on both um, Pfizer and Moderna, and I, I read those books. They were quite good, actually. Somehow, I'm not quite sure. Uh, I, they didn't end up at the to- on the top of any of my lists. I, I read one of the, I read the one about um, Pandemic Inc. Chasing the Capitalists and Thieves I read Who Got Rich While too. We Got Sick. Mm-hmm. That book is hilariously evil. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> and uh, you know, I read one on uh, you know uh, um, partisanship and the pandemic. So yeah, I you know I ended up doing a fair bit of reading. But somehow none of the books kind of floated to the top. So, anyways, uh, kind of maybe I'm just yeah, as you say, maybe I'm just not ready to yeah, talk about I, them. I I agree. Maybe it it is something you know. I could say I really think David Quammen did the best he could to make a definitive science guide, but there could be another one that comes out in a year or two. So, 2025. Put it in the calendar. We'll do the great right. pandemic book recap. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a good idea. Right. And that's got to be the Ed Young book, right? I don't think there's anybody that yeah. could write that book better than Ed Young. Oh, it'd be so great. I hope he's listening. Listen. We'll tag, when we, when we tweet it, we'll tag him. <laughs> <laughs> I know he's off. He's off for six months. So he's taken a well-earned break from social media. And I think from writing for The Atlantic. Yeah. So maybe he's working on another book. We can only hope. Yes. Well, if you want that list of books we talked about today and some ones we didn't get a chance to talk about, you can find a link to the blog post with that list and links to where you can buy all the books if you can't find them at your local bookshop. You can find those in the show notes for this episode, which will be on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca, or just crack open your podcast application uh, on your phone, and you should see that in the show notes that show with the podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. 